bow your heads with me and let's speak to this amazing Father of ours. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit stirring our hearts in worship and praise. Thank you for music, for the gift of hearing and song, for sound and sight and words and sense of intelligence sharing our appreciation with you of how great you are how much we need you and how thankful we are take my lips now Lord Jesus in your mercy and speak through them take our minds and think through them take our wills and bend them to your own And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. 24 hours that changed the world. That's the theme of our series as we head into Good Friday. And then on to Easter Sunday. 24 hours. I don't know if you've seen the billboards around, but given the generosity of the Lamar Corporation, we have as a gift the use of those billboards for our living Last Supper and 24, reminiscent of a show that was at one time on television. Let me tell you about those 24 hours in contrast in stark contrast to what was at the end of uh, the 1900s described as the trial of the century we're going to address the trial of history this morning but back in October of 1994 O.J. Simpson very handsome, athletic, good-looking, not just football player, but uh, into TV and advertising, was taken into custody, accused of murder, murdering his wife. That was October of 94. November 94 was the beginning of the assembling of a jury It wasn't until November of 95 that this trial of history came to a conclusion with O.J. Simpson declared not guilty. You realize that that's way over a year from the time of the murder itself to the declaration not guilty. Time magazine described it as an American tragedy. the trial of the century in contrast the trial that changed all history was less than 24 hours from taking Jesus captive to putting him through two different scenarios for his trial 
his being declared worthy of execution by crucifixion and his enduring that unto death. He was taken captive one night and by the afternoon of the next day he was dead, hanging on a cross. In 24 hours was accomplished a life-changing, world-changing, history-changing event. The trial and execution of Jesus. Just like that. There were two parts to the trial. If you look at page 6 in your service sheet... Mark chapter 15 is the second part. The close of chapter 14 is the first part. We have to deal with both here this morning. Both comprise the trial. The first part, Mark chapter 14, Jesus is taken captive in the garden of Gethsemane and led to the house of Caiaphas. And the whole of the, the, the leaders of the priesthood, the lawyers, the interpreters of the law, and the Sanhedrin, the, the religious government of Israel, they met at the house of Caiaphas seeking to condemn Jesus. And they were looking for witnesses to corroborate what they wanted, namely the charge of execution for those crimes, blasphemies. And they tried to bring all kinds of false witnesses and discussion about what was what and whether he was guilty of this, that, or the other. And in the end, and in frustration, the high priest virtually screams at Jesus and says, tell me, are you or are you not the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus not only said, it is so, but you will see the Son of Man coming in glory on the clouds. With that, the chief priest rent his garments and said, do we need any more witnesses? What say you? Blasphemy, they said, Deserving of death. That was the first part of the trial. Second part of the trial we'll come to in just a little bit. But on trial, both in the house of Caiaphas and before the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, What was on trial in the trial of Jesus in the first place was his innocence. Innocence on trial. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, without sin. Hebrews chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 4 and verse 15 says this that he was like unto us in all points of temptation and difficulty, except 
he was without sin. So he came as a human being, lived out our lives as we live them as a human being, but was absolutely without sin. The way Paul expresses it at the close of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he who knew no sin in himself, for himself, he who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we who were sinners might be made the righteousness of God. But he knew no sin. In other words, the man standing there on trial was innocent. He was beautiful in his innocence. He was without any sin. He was a pure man. He was what God created humanity to be. He was undefiled. There was nothing crooked, deceptive, nasty, wicked, deceitful. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He gave dignity back to prostitutes. He fed the hungry. He gathered and taught and drew the sinners back to the Father in faith. Have you ever tried to think your way through what innocence really is? There have been in a whole variety of dramas and stories the defilement of innocence. Some of you know the name uh, C.S. Lewis, I would think most of you. He wrote a trilogy. And in that trilogy, he tried to describe, it was a space science fiction trilogy taking place on a fictitious planet called Perilandra. And in the drama out of the silent planet, one of those stories, there is this planet, Perilandra, on which is a beautiful woman, pure, no defilement, absolutely innocent, by herself on this planet. And coming from Earth is the man Stang via a spaceship He is as wicked and crooked and sick as can be. And he sets about alluring the woman toward a sin, action, and life. And when you hear the drama as C.S. Lewis writes it, this beautiful, innocent woman and this sick, screwed-up, strang guy, as you're reading it, It's like I'm shouting at the pages as a young man when I read this. Don't believe him. Don't you trust him. Don't listen to him. Because here she was, beautiful in all her innocence. And this sick man coming to seduce her and corrupt her. Kind of a space fiction analogy. Reenacting the Garden of Eden. And you get the picture of the innocence being defiled. 
And your very being cries out about it. And I was a young, lusty guy at the time. I'm just an old, lusty guy now, but I was a young, lusty guy then. And I have to say that it was capturing the nature of innocence in this woman in contrast to the foulness of strength. The year I got married, 1967, I took my wife on our honeymoon to see a movie called The Sand Pebble with Steve McQueen. It's a miserable movie. I should never have taken her there. But Steve McQueen was cool and I wanted to go see the movie and my wife of three or four days came with me. And the key scene which gets Steve McQueen into all kinds of trouble, takes place in a bar, smoky, sweaty men, out in the Far East, and a beautiful virgin woman stood up before this foul-mouthed, foul-minded, stinky, sweaty, drunken scene for auction to take her to bed and Steve McQueen was horrified and he starts bidding and he didn't have two pennies to rub together to save this woman from this sweaty fat drunken man who was bidding up the price to take this beautiful virgin to bed same image you see this innocence and beauty and the corrupting influence of the world around. And one man trying to rescue the girl, which he ended up doing. Not for himself, but to rescue her from that scene. When you hear of a child, an innocent little child, being molested sexually, you are disgusted. What I'm trying to say, via this series of illustrations and so many more one could gather, is that innocence is beautiful. And when it looks like it's about to be defiled, everything that's good in us screams out, no, no, no. And Jesus on trial first with Caiaphas and then with the governor, Pontius Pilate. Everything in you is reacting against what's happening. Because here is the innocent, blameless, beautiful man of God, son of God, Corrupted and rejected, spit upon, beaten, beaten in both places. Pastor Jared and Pastor Ed Glover are going to be leading a trip to Israel next year. You go down into the house of Caiaphas, down into the place where Jesus was brutalized. Before he ever got to the governor's house. And you're repulsed at the beauty of Jesus being so beaten upon, rejected, spat upon, degraded. 
Innocence was on trial that day. Truth was on trial. Was Jesus who he said he was? Lies were evident. People trying to put together untruths in a way to sink Jesus, have him found guilty and executed. And in the end, the high priest, in exasperation, as if it's, he screams virtually, are you or are you not the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God? To which Jesus answered, so it is, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of glory and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And with that, the high priest screams, do we need any more witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What say you? And the cry comes back, he is guilty of death. But what was the truth? Truth was on trial as to who Jesus was. He said of himself, I am the way, the life, and the truth. Truth embodied in himself. Rejected. Discarded. And found worthy of death. And if he was not the Messiah, and if he was not the Son of God, he was worthy of death. Blasphemy would have been the charge. But what was the truth? Well, we know the answer to that. Again, the way Lewis puts it in another of his writings, Mere Christianity, if Jesus was not who he said he was, then he was either mad after the order of a man who thinks he is a poached egg, or wicked like the devil himself. Nobody ever draws the conclusion that Jesus was either mad or wicked. And if you don't draw those conclusions, you're left only with one other, given his claims, that he was who he said he was. And at that trial, he said who he was. And again, I say to you, if Jesus was not who he was, said he was, he is not able to deliver what he says he promises. But if he was who he said he was, and what the, we settle intellectually that issue, that there is no other issue and interpretation of that issue that makes sense of it, then how do we respond? Do we yield to him as the truth? Is his word truth? He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So he was dismissed and executed, found guilty, and sent on to Pilate for the secular part of the trial. Because Pilate had the power, the governor had the power, to execute Jesus. The religious court did not. So he's brought before the governor. Right at that moment, he's sitting in the governor's seat, in the seat of justice. Justice is on trial. 
He knows and finds every which way he can verbally to convince those around him that Jesus is not worthy of death. Why, what evil has he done? I encourage you to go home, and it's roughly in the same part of each gospel, right before the crucifixion, read through the trials as portrayed by Mark, which we've been looking at. Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. And you get a composite of what was being said and done at those trials. But justice itself was not being administered. Injustice, non-justice was being administered. Listen to these words from Acts chapter 8 and verse 32 and following. What you have here is an Ethiopian riding in a chariot and reading the book of Isaiah chapter 53. God sends Philip to join himself to that chariot and he's running alongside and he sees what the, the, this authority figure from Ethiopia was reading. He said, do you understand what it is you're reading? He said, no, not unless somebody tell me. So he gets up in the carriage and explains these words. Here's what he was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent. He did not open his mouth. In his humiliation... Hear these words. He was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life on earth was taken from him. And the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with this very passage of scripture and told him, The good news about Jesus. But he was denied justice. It was a kangaroo court of a trial. When Pilate says, what evil has he done? And to add to Pilate's misery, the governor... Pontius Pilate, his wife sends a message, I've been having dreams about this man tonight, have nothing to do with this innocent man. So the governor tries another ploy that time of the year. It was the custom to release one prisoner. He wanted Jesus released. Shall I release the king of the Jews? And they shouted as one man, no. Who shall I release? They say Barabbas, who was a criminal and a murderer. So the innocent Jesus is rejected and the criminal is turned loose, set free. Pilate is astounded. He says, I'll beat him and let him go. But they cried all the louder, louder, 
crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The church where I previously pastored enacted a Dorothy Sayers play about Jesus. And they got the crowd to be acted by the congregation. And at the point when the man who was playing the governor says, what shall I do with this man called Jesus? They all shout from the congregation, from the pews. It was spine chilling. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Can you imagine how you would feel if I had you do that right now? Concerning this Jesus, our Jesus, crucify him. Spine chilling. Justice. Not administered. So Jesus, in his trial, saw innocence rejected, truth rejected, himself and justice rejected. Let me just take you to another scene as we close. It's down on death row. That's where Barabbas is being held along with others to be executed. The soldiers come. You can hear them marching along the corridor. They come to the jail, unlock the door to take a man to crucify him. And he's screaming, I don't want to die. He's fighting, resisting struggling, screaming, weeping, pleading. And they drag him out to crucify him. And they come for the next man. And he's saying to himself, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to take it. And they come to his cell. And they open up that cell door. And they say, you can go free. And Barabbas says, go free. Why? Because Jesus is taking your place. And Barabbas says, you mean the holy man? You mean the prophet? You mean the one who's healing? Teaching? Speaking of God's love and forgiveness? He is going to die? On my cross? Yes, was the answer. And you can go free. And that's the way it was. But don't you see in that how Jesus comes to you to set you free from the jail of your sin and guilt? All the miserable stuff that you have said and done in your lives, as I in mine. Jesus says, You can go free. I took your place. What do you say? Well, let's speak to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this 
miserable expression of everything that's wicked in what we call a court and justice and a trial. All that you endured on your way to the cross, bearing it all that we might be forgiven. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It barely seems enough to simply say, thank you. But as we say thank you, we yield our lives to you anew and afresh. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness and mercy. Thank you for the gift of an innocence that we receive from you as a gift as we surrender to you. Thank you for the great gift of forgiveness from hell, from a judgment that is just and that we deserve. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for this great transaction that you bore on our behalf that we in turn might receive from you all your goodness and the freedom to live for you and the promise of a home in heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you back these lives of ours. We surrender them to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Fill them, Lord, with ceaseless praise. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.